Welcome to the Reproject Podcast channel. Our mission is to rethink, reskill, redesign the future of work for social scientists. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Reproject Podcast. My name is Erin Eldridge, and I'd like to introduce Catherine Liaikos, a senior monitoring evaluation and learning consultant at IMC Worldwide. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, nice to virtually meet everyone. <laughs> Awesome. All right. So for our first question today, Kat, would you just give us a little brief introduction about yourself, who you are and what you do? Yes, sure. I graduated from Leeds University with a master's in international development, quite a general master's. And that was in 2010. And since then, I've worked my way into monitoring and evaluation. So that is now what I do, but I've done a couple of different things on the way. So my job is basically to check in and evaluate projects that may be run through government or other international donors in Africa, Asia, wherever they may be, and evaluate them to see if they're on track and what the impact is and how they could be course corrected or improved. Awesome. Thank you so much. So sort of on that note, your professional path has been really diverse and you've been in a lot of different fields in different countries. How did you start that journey and how did it come to where it is now? I think some of it by luck, some of it by plan and design, and some of it just through sort of taking opportunities. When I graduated, my master's was so broad and general, I didn't really know where to start. So as a generalist, my undergrad was in languages as well. So that was quite different to to what I wanted to pivot into. And um, the advice we were given was really to get out there and volunteer. And that's not the only way, but it was just the biggest, clearest message that we were given and I didn't know any different. There weren't such organizations like Reproject or other kind of networks that I knew of, at least at the time, to tap into for advice. So I took the advice we were given and um, just worked for a couple of months, multiple jobs in the UK just to save some money, and then went to Peru to volunteer. And that just came about because somebody that I wrote to in Peru responded to me and we struck up a conversation and that took off. But I also was looking at Senegal, um, Morocco, because I, I spoke French. And I thought maybe I could be more useful somewhere where I speak the language already. But none of those that I'd reached out to came back to me in time or, or took off. So yeah, that's how I ended up starting off with going to Peru and since then I think it was just a case of looking for opportunities seeing what's out there seeing what fitted for me at the time and my skill set and even financial possibilities were a big factor as they are probably for most graduates so so that was how it shaped together but there was always like a thread running through that that I tried to follow that made sense or would make sense ultimately uh, in terms of the overall career. Very nice. I'm sort of in that same vein. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your fieldwork, and you've already touched a little bit on how you got into that through the volunteers sector. If you could even elaborate a little bit on the logistics of how you made that possible, and then give any advice to students who might be interested in having fieldwork similar to you. Yeah. Um, definitely, I would advocate for people to take any opportunities that they can, and if they can create the opportunities themselves as well, even better, because it's just so valuable to have that experience of just, first of all, living abroad, because you learn so much about yourself, your own culture, um, as well as other cultures. But in terms of fieldwork with an NGO, or in my case, even in Ethiopia with uh, monitoring evaluation, it was just such an insight to how things are actually done on the ground. And then if you find yourself one day again, working from an office based in the UK, the US, or sort of head office type job, you've got a much better understanding and can, can empathize with people who are carrying out the, the projects in those ground level locations. So 
for me, I wasn't too fussy about the thematic area that I was going to go in because, as I mentioned, it was that I graduated as a generalist. So I found an NGO that worked with children and did educational activities and um, health related activities with kids in Peru in the uh, rural Andes. So I didn't know anything about that location. I didn't speak Spanish. I wasn't aiming to get to South America or anything in particular. It really was not by design, but there was an NGO and still is called Changes for New Hope. And um, they were really responsive. And I asked all the questions that I have some doubts, some fears, some hesitations, gave me all the information I needed. The most responsive of all that I'd contacted, actually. And that was reassuring. So I went with that. And when you go with an organization or at least you're slotting into an organization as a volunteer or as a staff member or you know, whatever the arrangement is, at least you've got the cushion of somebody's there on the ground already. Um, somebody knows the context. They can advise you, you know, even what clothes to bring, what jabs to have, you need vaccinations. Obviously, you can do all that research yourself as well, but it's just really useful to have somebody who's kind of been through that process and can guide you a little bit, especially if you're young or haven't lived abroad before. Things can be quite daunting. However, worth it. So definitely would say if somebody can take that leap and even though it might be a bit scary, just just try and get out there. Obviously, things like the pandemic have made that impossible for the most part of almost two years now, I guess. But it's, it's definitely something that I think at any point in, in someone's career, they can just take a sidestep if even if they've got a cushy job in an office uh, I know it's quite difficult to, to maybe leave the financial stability or get time off to do it or take a sabbatical if that's an option for you through your work but it, these are all things that you can always bring to an employer as well if you do have a full-time job that you don't want to let go uh, I know for instance IMC Worldwide has a policy where people can take sort of three months out sabbatical and but go and do something that's meaningful to the person so whatever that might be to the individual um, so if you haven't necessarily had field work that you wanted to by that time you can look at options like that so I would say there's a lot of different options available and the key thing is to think a little bit outside the box uh, for me finances were a big deal I didn't have a lot of money to just up and leave so I did just work a couple of jobs for about seven months before leaving and I had a budget in mind. I did a bit of research as to and the contacts in Peru could tell me, you know, what budget I needed per month was useful information. So I thought, OK, I can stay there for four months. Uh, that was my original plan. I stayed there for three years. So obviously uh, I was flexible, but through moving around on the ground there, talking to people, making contacts, I got jobs locally um, that sustained my existence because it's a cheap place to live as well. So I think going with an open mind being friendly and talking to people and just sort of taking opportunities you never know where you will end up I mean even though it's not necessarily work in the development sector I was teaching English in Peru to, to children there getting a low salary but paid I also had a job at some point teaching to the managers and kind of ge um, geologists in an open pit copper and zinc mine which was a really crazy experience going up to the mine at like 4,000 something meters above sea level and the landscape was crazy. Those things don't happen to me in England. <laughs> so just being open to kind of following these weird, random, wonderful paths. And if you want to extend your stay, you find a way to do it. Uh, and it's always possible. Yeah, I think being really open-minded is a good place to start. Yeah, thank you so much. Having something as daunting as fieldwork demystified a little bit really puts everything in perspective and helps a lot. So our next question is about freelance consultancy projects, which are usually a great way to set foot in the industry and build connections. Can you share with us a little bit more about your experience with freelance? Like, how did you first start and what are good places to find openings? 
Yes, that is another big mystery for a lot of people than already in the freelance consulting world. So definitely I've learned some lessons about this. I work in a consulting firm. IMC Worldwide is a consulting firm. So we hire independent consultants all the time for our projects. And so I've seen it at a very senior level all the time, you know, people with 15, 20 years of experience, PhDs, uber qualified in a very niche area. So I always was thinking, what could someone like me offer sort of mid-level? A couple of years ago, I was looking at it thinking it'd be nice to get some other experiences through freelance consulting at some point, but you just feel so daunted and you think it's almost like imposter syndrome. What do I have to offer? But actually what I've learned is everybody has something to offer. And even if you are a generalist, there's roles for that too. So first of all, I would say, look at things like Relief Web and I mean, DevX is one of those websites that maybe you've, you've looked at, but they're always sort of usually high level jobs so for people starting out it's not necessarily the best place to look relief web does have some consultancies on it as well and the other thing i would say that i didn't know when i was younger was is that you could always just do a sort of a cold application a spontaneous application to consulting firms so you can just do your research to find out what are the international development consulting firms or those working in in certain sectors related to your area of interest and just offer them your services and say, look, uh, I'm whatever years of experience, uh, these are my skill sets, and I'm really open to taking ad hoc bits of work. And they often do because they have to just quickly up their staff or resources for a project if need be here and there, but they don't necessarily want to hire a huge body of staff because they can't always sustain it. So they really need freelance consultants to just go with the ebb and flow of project needs. So I think that would be something that I would recommend. I mean, I, I wish I'd known it at the time and I might have been able to do, you know, the odd bit here and there, even without a huge amount of experience, because there's a need at all levels, basically, you know, junior researchers, very commonly used on projects. What do you need for that? Everything that you've learned at university, basically, and just some common sense and professionalism. Don't be put off by the thought that you don't have anything to offer is the first key thing. Secondly, if you once things are opening and back to normal in real life, if you look for opportunities like networking events or take an area of interest that's personally of interest to you and see what events are going on where you can go and be like a, a live discussion, like a panel discussion or something like that. And then through going to those sorts of events, you'll see who are the key movers and shakers in these fields, who are the people either side of me in the event, can I just strike up a conversation with them? And I am terrible or I was terrible at networking. I was very shy um, when I graduated. This whole imposter syndrome this finding your identity as a, as a professional. And I was not the kind of person that would just put myself out there and talk to people in an event, especially if I was on my own. So I know this is really hard for a lot of people because I have been through it. But for example, I'll give you a, an experience that led me to a piece of work, which was I was getting really interested in the sort of social entrepreneur side of sort of social business and startups. And that was maybe 2015-16 and I uh, went to the Skoll World Forum and that's S-K-O-L-L and they have this well normally every year and they have this event where they do kind of an award ceremony um, just open discussion ceremonies and presentations of newly nascent but successful startups and social enterprise organizations working in across a range of different themes and fields in different locations and so this is a sort of high level event that people come to from all over the world they have amazing speakers and the opening and the closing sessions are um, open to the public so you can I think you have to pay 
something to go to those but it, for me it was of interest so I thought I'll, I'll do it again I didn't have a lot of money uh, I'd just come back from Ethiopia working as an intern and saved not a lot at all so <laughs> I went uh, by train I couch surfed for a couple of days to actually save money and go to this event and so I met this crazy lady in the queue as we were entering the first opening session and she was a magician she was American like larger than life character doing little tricks now I realized she was selling herself in that way like trying to network but using her magic tricks to do that but we ended up sitting next to each other in the event and I was wearing a jumper from Peru and she recognized it because she'd been there so we started talking And turns out she has her own NGO called Cause to Wonder, and she uses magic to spark a conversation or teach a message, but using that awe-inspiring, captivating thing that you can do with magic, but then sliding in a a message in there as well, like um, treating women well brings good luck or something like that. And so it's always very simple, but this is her model that she uses, and she'd never tested it. She'd never tested the impact of her work, and also she'd never researched after being in a location to know whether it actually had a negative effect or what kind of effect it had on the people. Did they think she was a witch? You just don't know these sorts of things when you're dropping in and out of these different villages and and cultures. So we got talking and I'd already had maybe 10, 11 months M&E experience in Ethiopia, very much on the ground level, that whole element of having understood the fieldwork and the logistics of how to actually do an evaluation on the ground was really helpful. And I was sort of talking to her about this. And over the course of a few days, we bumped into each other again, kind of kept in touch. And she pushed me to go and network. And I guess took me under her wing. And so I was really shy and timid. And she said, look, I want you to go and talk to three different tables in this cafe. And it was like in between sessions. And I thought, oh my God, how embarrassing. I can't do this. But I did and got some business cards. And for me, it was like really intimidating, but she was having a laugh and she meant well as well. And so by the end of it, she uh, offered me a job to do this impact study for her, where I was going to go to this rural northern Mozambique location where they barely didn't even have electricity, uh, no roads to access. Uh, I literally felt like James Bond arriving there by like plane and then the little speedboat and oh, it was nerve wracking. Of course, I said, yes, I did it. And I was knots in my stomach up until the moment I got there because I thought so much responsibility, like it's just me. I don't have a team to do this piece of work with. What if everything goes wrong and I don't get result? And it was probably the hardest thing I had to do in terms of like believing in my abilities and confidence and just also traveling to a really um, remote location without too much prior knowledge. I did as much research as I could, but there wasn't a lot. I couldn't even get a map to plan my route to go to the villages. So I literally had to make my own map with coordinates. (laughs) I mean, it was all very exciting, obviously. So I 100% do it again. But yeah, there was a local organization there that um, hosted me in their volunteer accommodation. I was the only person at the time there. And yeah, it was a a wonderful experience. And I'm so glad she gave me the opportunity. And the study is on her website, on the cause to wonder.org, I think. So yeah, I mean, you just don't know where these things are going to come from, is my point. But just being open to jumping at them is one thing that will really set you apart. What a cool story. And it really speaks to the power of mentorship, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So next, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you actually do in your role. So you're an expert in monitor and evaluation, which is a hard skill set needed for international development in the humanitarian sector. What advice would you give to students and graduates who wish to build their careers in a similar direction? And what's some preparation needed before starting out? Good question. I know my master's course did 
container component on search methods and then specifically opened our eyes to M&E because I was fresh out of my undergrad and straight into the master's. I didn't have any real world experience in development prior to doing that course. So I didn't really know where it fitted into the bigger picture until a lot later. So I didn't appreciate that M&E was, you know, a whole career area in itself at the time when I was doing my master's. So later I I found this internship for uh, this position in Ethiopia and even like better it was paid. So I thought, yay, a paid internship at the time. That was like really, really, I know now there's been a big movement to kind of improve that. Um, But at the time there was really not a lot out there that was paid. So I took it and that's how I discovered uh, M&E and discovered that I really liked it. And the things that I like about before I go into the details, are the fact that it's very practical, it's applied because you're looking at a program or a project which is taking place or has taken place and you're using academic theory to assess and judge whether it has gone well or less well and how it could be improved for next time. So it ties in like things that I like about the research and academia side of our work, but then also the practical applied side. So you can really see the purpose of what you're doing. So I realized it was something I thought would be great to stay in um, this ME sphere. ME in itself is very broad. So there's a hundred different things you could do within ME. Um, there's quantitative side and there's the qualitative side, which is probably the easiest way to split it. I'm more of a qualitative researcher and that's where I'm more comfortable. I would like to be more quantitative minded, but um, advice to anybody who would like to really kind of get to grips with M&E would be to, while you're at uni, if you can do some kind of stats course or bone up on your maths or whatever it is that you need to do to get comfortable with numbers and statistics, because I didn't do any maths since I was in high school and, you know, definitely don't feel the most comfortable with statistics. So yes, there's all these online courses you can do and there's all of these personal study things you can do to improve that side. But I think if you want to go into hard data, that side of m definitely take a more statsy route, <laughs> um, data analysis and, um, and using different softwares. You can get some online to play around with for free as well. Like R, you can get a free version online and maybe maybe Starter. That you can get all these different packages that are typically used in the field. So my advice would be try and work out if you want to be qualitative or quantitative. You don't have to be both. It's helpful and I think it gives you an edge if you are. But at least being able to understand numbers and analyze and understand and interpret the analysis of quantitative data is really key. Other than that, I think all the social research skills are applicable. So things that you've done through studies, literature reviews, that kind of thing, maybe even interviews to get data. That's all things that you would apply day to day in your job within m So there's ground level m where you're sort of in the field, on the coal face, collecting the data or managing teams collecting data. I would say as well, there's usually a language barrier. So, you know, it's usually typically going to be local teams from local companies, local researchers doing that sort of M&E. You might be managing teams like that through an NGO, for instance, but otherwise there's NGO headquarter jobs where you're setting up M&E systems for them, checking that their programs are actually on track and how do you measure these? What kind of metrics are you using to ensure that you're hitting targets and getting the impact that you want to get? And then doing sort of annual evaluations or just regular evaluations to report to the donors because that's a big part of M&E is basically accountability and reporting to those who are giving you the funding. And on top of that, all M&E work should also feed into the idea of learning so that the wider sector can also take anything that you produce, like an evaluation report, take it and learn from it. So if they want to say, do a program on violence against women in New Guinea, 
then they can go, oh, look, let's look at these programs that have already tried, tested different approaches and what are the lessons that they learned and how can we integrate those lessons into our program design moving forward. So in theory, great if all of these reports were made public, they're not always. Um, it depends what's in them and how sensitive the information is and how sensitive the donors are. Um, but for instance, the UK government usually puts its reports on a website called DevTracker, which is an interesting one to know about. Um, DevTracker, you can find all information about kind of big programs that the government are funding, their annual reports, their uh, usually or often their evaluations, and they try to be accountable to the taxpayer that way as well. So yeah, it's a bit of a broad overview of ME in a few minutes. In terms of physical tools, again, it will depend on the donor that you're typically working with because they all have their own prefer preferences for how to manage projects and how to manage their reporting. But um, I work a lot for programs with the UK government, for example, and they love log frames, logical frameworks. So it's this big spreadsheet where they basically track some key indicators that have been pre-agreed and pre vetted so supposedly these are the indicators that you're looking for across the life of your program so you want to be hitting these things by certain target dates so you set the dates and you say by the end of year one we expect x many women to have received training in microfinance whatever it is that you're doing and then you kind of monitor that so that's the basis for all the data that you would be collecting in the field throughout the life cycle of your project you would be putting it into the spreadsheet and that's your final okay here's what we've achieved looking at the actual quantifiable and also qualitative data goes in there too but you know in, in terms of actual impact so that's a tool that comes up a lot and the other thing is uh, a theory of change so the theory of change is a diagram and a narrative usually that goes along with it that just describes the, the type of change you expect to see across a uh, program. So at the ground level, what are the activities? And then what are the first level changes you expect to see? Nascent changes that you want to bring about in that community or within that organization or country even depends on what level you're working at. And then at the top, you've got this huge, like, what's your overarching impact that you of course, won't be achieving on your own, but you want to be feeding into this global level or like national level impact. So those are tools that a lot of programs use from the design phase that should be set up in the design phase because it helps you think through the logic of the program. So NGOs use these a lot. Government big donors will use these a lot. Um, so those are two things I would say you can quite easily find information online about. There's a website called Better Evaluation. I don't know if it's .com or .org, better evaluation. That's really good for breaking these resources down. That's one that I've referred to quite often, and it'll give you maybe examples and how to develop a theory of change, for instance. Um, and then I think also Bond, the UK organization Bond. Yeah, they have some good trainings, not always cheap, uh, but I think as a student, you get a discount. So I've done one or two trainings with Bond as well. Thank you so much for that insight. What is your best piece of career advice that you would have given your younger self? Good question. Yes. I think because I didn't have any contacts in this field at all, no family members, no friends, I didn't even know it existed really until basically the end of my undergraduate when I was looking around thinking, okay, what do I do now? French and linguistics degree. And I discovered I wanted something that it wasn't like an international type focus, but I didn't know and I wanted it to be a positive, positive impact uh, through the work, but I didn't know how to go about that. And then I discovered the development sector. I think I took for granted sort of the initial advice that I was given as being the only way, but actually 
it's not. And I, and I do think there are a lot more resources out there now online for people to try and give advice like this. So I, I do wish that maybe I'd looked outside the box a little earlier just to see see what the options were really. But I think apart from that, honestly, just being really open and flexible. If you have, if you go in with a fixed idea, you might struggle or or if you're not very flexible, I know not everyone's lifestyle allows them to be flexible enough to just go to Peru for a year or six months. I do understand that, but there's other things you can do remotely or volunteering. Yeah, you can volunteer remotely if you wanted to whilst doing another job, uh, which pays your bills. So I think just having that openness and flexibility to work it into your lifestyle, however best suits, is probably super important. I have met people who've been very fixed in their path and set themselves a trajectory. And I and it, maybe it works for them, maybe it works for some, but I it, I don't think in this sector it's necessarily the best way to, to go about it. And also just the other thing, just the... The order that you do things in, it doesn't really matter, but people worry I'm not specialized in anything, but over the course of years, you, you become specialized in something or you stay a generalist and you become an amazing program manager because you've got all these experiences and you might have thought I'm going to be a gender expert, but you end up being a really good general program manager and that's equally great. But it, just having these fixed ideas um, and thinking you've got to do things in a certain order is not necessarily correct. I think you can arrive in a lot of different ways at your happy place. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll just give you the opportunity. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners at the Reproject? Well done to them for finding this kind of resource and like doing their research for, for sure. It's definitely useful to read and, and listen to other people's accounts. I love hearing stories of other people, sort of how they got to where they are in their careers and life as well. And hopefully they'll find some inspiration from, from these kinds of stories. So thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you so much, Catherine Liekos, for all of your insight today. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you want to stay up with all the Reproject content, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome.